Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 33 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with Detroit Symphony Orchestra bassist and music librarian Robert Stiles. My intention when I sat down to talk with him was to explore his work as a music librarian, which I do in part two. But our conversation about him becoming a bassist was so fascinating that I wanted to share that with you as well. You're a bass player. Why the bass? How did it, how did this? <laughs> you <laughs> how laughed did that right happen? away. You laughed right away. Yeah. How did that happen? Why the bass? Well, uh, I was in sixth grade and uh, the beginning of school. Uh, there were two people that came in the classroom, and they said, you know, we're here to talk to you about playing an orchestra. And there was one small, diminutive woman and then a normal-sized human <laughs> who had a bass in her hand. And um, I had been playing the piano since I was like three and a half or four, and I was kind of burned out and right. just done. And I looked at the bass, and I thought, well, that could be fun. So I chose that and told my parents. They looked at me like, how are we going to move that thing around? I'm like, well, you, you know, we've got a big car. It's fine. <laughs> So that's kind of how it happened, just sort of by accident. I mean, did you have a natural aptitude for it? I mean, we were kind of surprised that, oh, I picked this thing and I can actually play it. I think all those years of piano playing, you know, uh, I didn't have to think about learning music. It was just a matter of, like, how do, how do the fingers work or where do they go? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I picked it up fairly quickly. Um, honestly, didn't have a actual bass teacher until um, my senior year in college. Or, sorry, high school, senior high school. And I taught myself, and I made Allstate, um, you know, throughout high school. And um, I worked with a local music teacher who was like a general music teacher. He taught all instruments and kind of how it happened. And I started traveling to Lubbock from my hometown, which was like 100 and, I don't know, it was 190 miles away. Right. On weekends for a lesson with someone that knew someone. And then when I was a senior in high school, Right before that summer, I had been in a car wreck, and I had this job <laughs> where I was going to be a bug scout for the Texas A&M University Agricultural System. And a friend and I were supposed to like go out, you know, crack of dawn and look for bugs in crop fields that they were trying to, you know, catalog and isolate what was going on. Well, without a car, you can't really drive 20 miles outside of town to do that. So I... I remember this one uh, university uh, had sent out a thing about a summer music festival camp for two weeks. I'm like, well, that'll kill some time. So mm-hmm. I, this happened like, you know, a week before that camp started. Called them. Next thing I know, we're driving to the University of Kansas where I spent a couple of weeks there. And this other bass player that I met who became a really good friend was from Dallas. And he was studying with the assistant principal of the Dallas Symphony who taught at Southern Methodist University. After I got home from the camp, I called – that teacher went up for a lesson, and then I spent that year um, going up to Dallas once a month, and that uh, led to a full-ride scholarship at SMU. And it was back in the day when Southwest Airlines had $19 fares one way. Right. I remember that. And uh, my town, where I grew up in San Angelo, didn't have Southwest, but we drove to Midland, Odessa, which was like 110 miles away. I would hop a flight. My sister would pick me up at the airport, who lived just outside of Dallas, drive me over to the university for a lesson, feed me lunch, send me back home. <laughs> How long did you do that? Um, for a year. once About once a month for a year. And so you didn't have to bring your bass. You played someone's bass there, yeah, right? Yeah, Libby and yeah. there. Was it worth it? Yeah, it was. This was the best. At the time, you know, the situation was, was good for me. What's the most challenging thing other than the car you have to drive about... <laughs> I should ask you a series of, uh, like, you yeah. give me the series of all the cars that you've driven throughout your life. But right. it seems like each instrument comes with its particular challenge. 
you know. And For sure. and what was it about playing the bass that you that was like the most challenging, or that other musicians will look at it and go, yeah, that's that's the tough thing about that instrument. I think what's hard about the bass is being able to play like any instrument, really, to play in tune, but oh, to yeah. really feel it because sometimes uh, on stage, especially, it can be so loud you can't really hear yourself. So you end up relying on feeling vibrations in your hand. Um, and sometimes you'll see a lot of bass players lean in and they'll put their hand, their their ear on their hand or something like that. Because you're what you're trying to do is just kind of hear what you know what you can't hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes if the whole band is playing and just <laughs> blasting, there's no way. So if you're on a sustained, you know, longer note, then that's about all you can do. So that's a challenge, I think. And I think then being able to project too is the other issue we have because it's a lower sounding instrument to make it fill space um, and to do it in a way that is pleasing and not uh, aggressive mm-hmm. <laughs> or ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think string playing has changed a lot over the last 50, 60, 70 years um, as uh, musicians moved away from gut strings. And especially, I think, on the bass, it went through a period from gut to steel where people had to learn how to play on steel strings, which was a challenge. And then to do it in a way that it sounded pleasing and not just raw. Why did that change come? Because finally, you know, after World War II, there was material that was strong enough to, you know, and plentiful and cheap enough, I, I guess, is mm-hmm. really why it happened. You know, the problem with gut strings is they don't stay in tune. They're mm-hmm. constantly going out of tune just because of their inherent nature. So um, steel strings offer the benefit of staying in tune a lot more <laughs> reliably. Mm-hmm. You know, over over my, you know, career as a bass player, you know, dating back 40 years now, yeah. in some way, um, the, the kind of strings we play on have changed quite a bit, and it's constantly been an evolution, um, especially in the last 20 years. I, I've seen just all kind of new string companies and new types of strings develop, you know, and the, the thing is, it's like no, no one string works for everybody because every mm-hmm. instrument needs something different, it seems, and that's always the trick, but it, for us, it's a 300 dollar meta minimum now investment basically to sort of just try something on you know it's not like you can order it on amazon try it on and send it back they're not <laughs> right. going to let you do that you know with strings it's a tricky thing so sometimes you just you get what you get and you kind of deal with it if you don't want to you know spend yet more mm-hmm. money but it's definitely changed the way you play like i i just changed strings two weeks ago um i've been trying a set for a little over a year now that a friend of mine suggested and um you know, the new, the newest and the greatest, the best, you would like this. Mm-hmm. Sounded terrible on my instrument. It's just terrible. And I put up with it for a while. And, you know, then the pandemic came and there was no playing going on. And just, you know, by yourself practicing and stuff like that. And, I, you know, I was attributing it to a lot of things. You know, I'm tired. The weather. Yeah. <laughs> my rosin is terrible. I hate my rosin. That's another issue. And I was like, you know what? I got this gig coming up. I'm just going to see what else I can do. And I, even if I have to, like, put on an old set of strings... I just can't do it anymore. Long story short, I had found a brand new set of strings that I had bought that I had never used that I was going to use a couple years ago, and then I got asked to play a concerto. I put them on, and it was instant euphoria. Wow. And, um, you know, it takes a while for strings to break in. That was, I guess, three weeks ago now that I put them on, and um, I've just been having a real real joyous time playing the bass the last two weeks especially because it feels... Right. It's like that nice, comfortable pair of blue jeans or that sweatshirt or whatever it is that makes you comfortable. You know, it just feels right again. I was just gonna, I was just about to ask you to explain the, that feeling, like the uncomfortableness. Um, 
opposed to the comfort that, you know, the, the rest of us that don't play would say, well, they all look the same. And why did it feel so wrong when you had those strings and so right, right. when you had this other set? You know, the job of a bass player is to provide support, a foundation, like, uh, or and like, like a big cushion, a big pillow for the orchestra to sound great with, right? And this particular set of strings I was using, I found them to be very brittle, raw. They they would squawk if I didn't play them just right. Like, you know, I had to kind of relearn how to use my bow to manipulate these strings. And it just was not working. <laughs> Uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but I kept on thinking it was me. And like, I have to give them more time because sometimes right. it does take a month or so for a set of strings for us to really uh, break in. And I kept on saying, oh, it's me, it's me, it's me. And then I said, no, maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe this time it's not me. Not operator um, error for a change, right? Yeah. And so you want to find a string that helps your bass speak and sound its best. And my bass is um, really great in that it's got a ton of resonance. And if it's good resonance, it really envelops a room and it can really fill a space comfortably and not be ugly and be warm. You know, it's the difference between like cheap chocolate and really good chocolate maybe is a an analogy that when you taste it and you're like, oh, yeah. When you're like Ghirardelli hot chocolate versus just, you know, something mm-hmm. out of a packet or, right. you know, whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> That's a big the way difference. It should be. I don't know. Like every instrument fits players differently and the way that they maybe uh, create a sound with their bow arm, for instance. And, you know, maybe some things will work better for other people. I remember the first note I played on uh, the current instrument that I have was a B flat on the A string. Boom. And it produced this just unbelievable sound like, oh, this is it. This is the one. And I've been I've been shopping for a bass for months at that point. And um I just remember it was one note and I'm like, all right. That was it. That was it. You know, so how long have you had that bass? Since nineteen ninety three, January of ninety three. Wow, it's been a while. Do you that, have more than one? I don't anymore. Um I had a smaller solo instrument for a bit and then, you know, that didn't really Prove fruitful <laughs> for me at that point in my life. So I actually, that's a funny story. I, it was the advent of the internet, really. Um, I guess it was in 90, spring of 98. I was helping a friend look for a violin on the internet. And we were just kind of Googling everything we could think of. We didn't even Google back then. It was Ask Jeeves or right. God knows what, <laughs> Netscape. And the idea of like searching for instruments was a novel idea that way at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to try this for fun while she, she went to go get a drink of water or something. And I found this um, instrument that's uh, ma- a famous maker that's French named Kenwall, um, who one of my um, teacher's teachers plays on famously – and I found this shop in outside of London. They shipped it to me in a cardboard box. They they took um, the instrument kind of apart. They took the neck off, took the bridge down, took the strings off, and they shipped it, packed it, wrapped it, wrapped it, wrapped it. And um, I had it shipped to Houston um, where I was going to be for a few days. And um, we went and picked it up. We took it back to this uh, <laughs> local <laughs> violin shop there and had them put it together. And we're like – well, let's see what happens. You know, I just spent, I don't know, what did I spend on that base? Like $10,000. Right. I hope this is not just, just <laughs> terrible. And we put it together and it wasn't bad. Right. Well, um, it needed work. It needed some real uh, uh, refurbishing, right. if you will, an overhaul. So I sent it to this shop that we, uh, a lot of us use in Albuquerque. And um, 
I never saw it again. He put it the, – the owner I, – I knew him well. I uh, he, he had – I knew him very well. It's where I bought my bass and I had worked there at one mm-hmm. point when I was playing in Albuquer- the Albuquerque Symphony. And he got it done. He said, you don't need this. I'm like, what do you mean you don't, I don't need this? He said, you need to sell it. I'm like, <sighs> after all this I've been through, I've waited like a year to have this. He's like, you're going to make three times what you paid for it. Sell it. Okay. And I did. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> So that's um, a great story. You know, it just who knew that that one little moment would lead to that and then I had a nice little profit. When you were in college, you discovered these works of Kusevetsky? Kusevetsky, yeah. Yeah. And talk about I, that fascinated me because I thought you're doing your was this your thesis? I was my dissertation your for dissertation. Yeah. Um well I had been struggling for a while to come up with an idea for a dissertation. And uh, right before I moved to Detroit, I had had this idea, and I kid you not, it was basically the idea of Wikipedia, but for for base. Mm-hmm. I thought there's unbelievable amounts of information that we all individually know, but we don't know what everyone else knows. How could we share this together in some kind of a forum? I didn't know enough about programming or about how to set anything up at the time. So I was still struggling with coming up with some idea of how to make that happen. And I just won my job here in Detroit. And at the end of the summer, I had uh, about 10 days or so uh, before the season started. And I went on a trip to the East Coast. I'd never been to like Maine or Massachusetts in that little quadrant of the universe. So uh, I drove with my parents and uh, one of my sisters and we spent a week in a house just outside of Sunday River, Maine. And... um, one of the days we were up there, a couple of the days we drove over to uh, the Berkshires in Massachusetts, um, and the librarians of the Boston Symphony and I had gotten to know each other over the past year, and they're like, come out and spend the day with us, and so we did all that. And as it turns out, one of the librarians there, his wife's um, brother was the caretaker of a house called Saranac, which was the house that uh, Sergei Kusevitsky uh, lived in. And Kusevitsky was music director of the Boston Symphony for 25 years, I believe, and was the person that made Tanglewood become what Tanglewood Mm -hmm. is. Um, Actually, the New York Philharmonic was the first orchestra that played there. But for whatever reason, they didn't go back after, I think, the first two seasons, I believe. Um, And Boston jumped on the opportunity, and Kusevitsky, you know, made that thing what it's become. Anyway, he had this unbelievable house there, and there's a big portrait of him just to the side of the fireplace. And as we're walking through with my mom and my dad, um, my mom turns to me and she says, well, why don't you write about that guy? <laughs> and I'm like, that guy? I, I hadn't thought about that. You know, because it's like there's not that much literature about a lot of our base people mm-hmm. that exist, especially at that time in, you know, 99 or so. So I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll get back and I'll look. Well... At that time, there were two biographies. One was written in Russian. It was written by a member of the Communist Party <laughs> after <laughs> Kusevitsky defected. Uh, so it was not the most flattering, because oh, uh, you could imagine. And the second was uh, written by a former student of Kusevitsky, who Kusevitsky decided wasn't good enough to continue working with him mm. as a composer. And again, not the most flattering bit of material. So about well, kind of at a, a few dead ends. And, you know, again... Early days of the internet, I'm looking around trying to figure out what I can learn. Um, turns out that the Kusevitsky family had donated much of his material to the Library of Congress. 
and which happens, I guess, with a lot of you know famous people. They just donate materials. Um, the Library of Congress gets tons of material every year, and they don't have any way of really processing it all. So a lot of it sits in boxes, and they kind of do a kind of big picture cataloging, if you will. Box one, Kusevitsky personal letters. Box two, bank statements. <laughs> Box three, musical scores, or whatever it may be. But it's not really detailed. That next summer, I went to uh, the Library of Congress, I think, two or three times. Actually, during the course of the year, I guess it really was, and looked through those boxes and started making notes, cataloging that stuff, and realized um, I have just came across like a treasure trove of information that was basically unknown. Um, you know, as a bass player, we know his like basic five pieces that we play. There's the, a concerto um, that's probably his most famous work, and then there's a series of small miniature pieces that were kind of like show pieces, and that's all we've ever really known. It turns out that he wrote close to like 30 pieces and they're just sitting in these boxes. And then as it turns out, the colleagues I had met at the Boston Symphony where he was conductor, I went and worked with the archivist there a little bit and looked through their materials and their notes to learn as, as much as I could and try to piece all this together and figure out, are these really his? What do these things mean? And how do they, how do they relate to what we already knew? Because there's always been this question as to whether or not the concerto was really him or mm. was it finished by uh, Reinhold Glier, who was another Russian composer. And it's always kind of been a suspicion, like, ah, he didn't really write this, you know. Because, again, there's other stories, like Kusevitsky could not conduct the Rite of Spring in the way that it was intended, apparently. There's a difficult metric section towards the end that he had someone rebar, so he conducted in a much simpler pattern. <laughs> Supposedly is a story. Again, right. did it really happen? I don't know. Right. But that's the story. So, the, you know, you start hearing these things, uh, simplified conducting of a difficult piece. Maybe the concerto wasn't really his. How true was this? So I tried to see what I could do. What could I do to figure out how to make these things? What kind of truth can I find here? And I feel fairly certain that he wrote all the materials that I found and that he wrote the concerto. And, um, you know, just based on looking at his manuscript, seeing it change, you know, his, his penmanship and seeing the integrity of those materials, you know, it seems to me that that was, uh, you know, definitely his concerto. And, you know, uh, it was just interesting to to go through that process. I remember one of the pieces he wrote, uh, there was a series of etudes, and on the top of one of them, he had written an, uh, an, a name, H. Greenberg, and there was an address on Park Avenue, and then there was the old-style phone numbers with 25, AC, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was able to track down what that building address was when it was built. I went to the New York City Department of Public Records or whatever it was and found out when the building was built. So I tried putting a timeline together. So I was trying to like, how can I date when these etudes were actually written? You know, because I know when he came to America. I know when his performing career kind of ended um, and when he started the job in Boston. And so it seems like in this case, these etudes were written for someone to teach them something. And this H. Greenberg was a bass player, um, as it turned out, who uh, eventually played in the Boston Symphony, but actually played in the orchestra in Detroit here for a small period of time, too, in the mid to late 20s. And, uh, you know, the apartment probably is where either Kusevitsky was staying or this Greenberg character lived. <laughs> <laughs> this must have felt like uh, quite um, a hunt or an investigate. You must have felt like an investigative reporter or something trying to uncover all of these unanswered questions about somebody nobody knows 
all the truth about and not a whole lot about. Um, and then you find all of this work. How was your dissertation received? I, I think it was fairly positively received. Um, I mean, people still ask me for copies of of bits of that information all the time. And um, or how did you find this? How did you find that? I get you know emails now and then um, about that. But the base the base community that knows about what we've I found has been uh, very positively received. When you were talking about having these online chats or forums with bass players. What do bass players talk about? <laughs> hey, what kind of rosin do you use? That's usually the most common really? topic. Well, that's a kind of a running joke in the bass world because you know, no one likes their rosin. Everyone's always looking for something that, you know, works better because it's so temperature sensitive uh, right. to what you have. And then it dries out in the winter and especially February is the worst for us here in the, the in Midwest. Midwest. Yeah. But um, all kind of things. You know, a lot of people, it's amazing what's happening in the bass world, actually. Uh, so many really talented performers um, writing new music, a lot of interesting new things going on, a lot of collaborative projects that, you know, are uh, able to happen that maybe didn't used to happen. I think that the bass is being looked at less as a complementary instrument, maybe in a lot of settings now, as opposed to just being in front and center of a lot of situations, which is really cool because the level of playing has just increased tremendously. And and that which goes along with access to having instruments and teaching, good teaching of students at a young age, um, makes all the difference. I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. Here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Robert Stiles in which we talk about the job of music librarian for an orchestra. When we sit in the audience and we watch the orchestra play, it's like, oh, everybody's got their music there and nobody really thinks about, well, how exactly did everybody get the right part and get their music and everybody's good to go so there is actually a performance and you are a key part of how that happens. So what does a music librarian for an orchestra do? We try to make sure that... Every musician has the right part uh, on their stand available to them at the right time in simplistic terms Um, and that that music matches what the conductor is intending. Sometimes it's not always the case that we have to work through that. You know, maybe the conductor is insisting on a certain addition or doesn't think to verify what he's (laughs) doing. He or she are doing is going to be what we're doing and um, type thing. But uh, for the the, most simplistic way is Mm -hmm. to making sure that they have everything that they need. When the conductor and the music director decides on a season, that's all decided, like, okay, these are all the works that are going to be performed, right? That information is, you must be one of the first people that information is shared with, I would assume. We are. And sometimes we're consulted in advance of those releases um, to sort of give guidance and say, you know, you might want to think about this or this could happen or here's another suggestion. Um, Because you can't get everything you want. Is that... Part of the Some, challenge? Sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's a communication uh, issue of the conductor understanding just because you heard that on a YouTube recording, that doesn't mean it exists <laughs> for you to use. <laughs> right. Or, or whatever the case may be. So, 
you know, it's nice to have a very symbiotic relationship with the people who plan the season and those of us who are executing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a good, a very, you know, good situation like that at the DSO where, you know, we all kind of work together to mm-hmm. make sure that everything works as smoothly as possible. Does it become more challenging when you have guest conductors come in and they just say, well, this is what I want to do, and then you have to make it happen? Sometimes. Um, and I think it depends, too, who the guest conductor is, as to how much we're able to do for them. We always do things, I, I think, in our case with the DSO, at the highest possible level of you know, artistic preparation and integrity we, we can. <laughs> right. Um, but sometimes there's an issue of, okay, the conductor wants to do this piece, but if we decide to do this, it's going to cost an extra $2,000 or so to rent it. It's going to cost you an extra $1,500 to bring an accordion player to come in and do this particular piece. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to hire an extra pianist. Suddenly we're up to spending, you know, 4500 for a 13-minute piece. Is it worth it? So, you know, those are the kind of the kind of conversations that happen sometimes in the background. And maybe you've been a big name in the business for 30 years. If you say jump, I don't say anything but how far. <laughs> it's my response. Okay. But if you're, you know, one of the young green people that sometimes comes through and they want to do these outlandish kind of things, the answer might be, mm, no. <laughs> But it doesn't come from me, per se, this answer, right. but we facilitate the no. You facilitate the no. I would assume that every orchestra has a library of music that gets pulled out every few years because the piece gets played again yeah. and again, right? Right. But sometimes you have to rent you have to rent the parts and the score. Right. Where is all that? Like, where do you go to the rent, the, you know, the, the parts rental store or whatever. Rentals.com. <laughs> Rentals.com <laughs> to get all this yeah. music because there's rights issues and you have to pay. Sure. And there's all these different kinds of things that we don't even think about. This is a very uh, precise kind of um, manner in which you have to go about getting these sure. parts, right? Right. So basically, you know, the U.S. copyright law dictates what things are available for sale and what's available, you know, that a composer can decide how they want to disseminate their material. Mm -hmm. Most composers who work with orchestras across the country will have a third party, a rental company, provide their material. And sometimes those parts are engraved or prepared by that rental outfit, or sometimes Mm -hmm. the composer gives them to the company already ready to go, and they act as the middle person. In the United States, there's been a lot of consolidation in the last 20 years that now a couple of large companies um, represent the catalogs of the majority of composers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some smaller companies, uh, boutique firms, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> but Lux is yeah. huge, right? And they're here. They are here. And they are a reprint company. They don't typically provide rental music for um, modern composers. Right. They have older sets of public domain stuff they will rent that maybe is a cheaper or better alternative for, say, a smaller community mm, okay. orchestra to follow. Um, but if I need to rent the music of Bartok or Hindemith, I go to this company called European American Music. If I need to rent the music of Stravinsky or Copeland or Ravel, I call my good friends at Boozy and Hawks. Um, I don't call them. <laughs> <laughs> so do you say, this? we're going to perform this work and I need the parts for 
the entire orchestra, and how does that come to you? It comes in a big box. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we, we submit our request. In our, in our situation, we always go through a budgeting process. So first uh-huh. I'll get quotes, mm-hmm. and then once we've announced our season, um, and something I've been doing the last 10 days or so is confirming all the rental contracts for the 21-22 season. And the company will send us, you know, however many parts. Well, they'll send us a required number of parts, say if there's 32 wind parts, wind and brass and percussion parts, then they'll send complementary string parts and I'll specify, you know, how many of each that I need. And so the box will be, you know, full of all that material and we usually ask for extra scores because mm-hmm. um, we need one for our conductor, the cover conductor. We like some to keep one in the library for reference in case we need to ask questions about notes or r- rhythms or other things in the parts. Um, and then, you know, we have, then have to deal with other scores for the webcast engineers and the list goes on and on. And so do they come, are these all clean copies? Are they marked up copies from other orchestras that have used them? Yes, they all seen of a lot above. of action? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's always a little bit daunting when you get a clean set of parts um, because then you have to kind of create Boeings for them like and think through the piece. Not that who we does don't, it? You? Um, our concert master and the other mm-hmm. string principals basically do that. They'll go through all that. Yeah, okay. and make that process. So if a, if a piece comes with Boeings already, bonus. It's, it's a bonus. It's a real help. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a map, right? Yeah. It's already filled in. It says, how do you get from here to there? Sometimes they're terrible, though. The Boeings don't make any sense. It was maybe who knows who played this last Maybe the circumstances I can't even (laughs) dream of that made them want to do this. Um, And sometimes physically, the materials have to be be put on the uh, physically unable to be performed list. (laughs) Because they're just so bad. Yeah. I mean, this has happened. You get stuff and you're like, really? I'm paying thousands of dollars for this? You know, and the thing about the copyright stuff is it's I'm not paying for the paper. I'm paying for the intellectual property. Sure. You know, a company will keep selling and reusing something as often as they can because there's a cost to them, right? Right. Um, so sometimes we have to have a little discussion with the company and <laughs> <laughs> say, could you try again? Um, and then we go from there and, and try to make it work. So when it comes to the conductor, they have the score, and that's a completely different than what every – it's completely different than what everyone else has. Now, do they have their own – or do they – do you you order a copy for them, but do many of them come in with like, this is how I've done this and I've got right. it down and I'm bringing my own stuff? How does that work? Um, yeah, all, all those answers again. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, if it's a standard literature piece like a Beethoven symphony, a Brahms symphony, mm-hmm. most conductors have an, their own score and they bring it with them and they use that. Um, sometimes they will ask us if we have something that they can just use. You know, if you've been doing this piece for 25 years – Maybe you don't want to carry a, your own score to Beethoven 7 because you know how you're going to do it mm-hmm. and you just show up and you conduct it. Right. And they don't – they impart their wisdom and uh, the unspoken nature of conducting, right. which is the most beautiful way of conducting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but sometimes if it's a more modern work or some more obscure work, they will ask us, hey, I need to get a copy of, you know, piece X. Mm-hmm. Can you send one to me? So I can prepare in advance. And so then that'll happen sometimes. And sometimes they're able to get their own. Sometimes, you know, conductors, just like soloists, a lot of times will have a set of core repertoire that they're going to be performing in a certain season over and over again. Um, so like, uh, you know, maybe, you know, conductors, Smith's big piece this year is, um, you know, Beethoven 9. 
So maybe he'll go around to different orchestras with his own set of parts, which is a, a really good way to do it if you're a young and aspiring conductor because <laughs> that way they're marked exactly with what you want and you don't have to talk so much and you look smarter <laughs> as, as a result. <laughs> that always helps, right? Yeah. It, well, it, it's a big thing. And sometimes we have composers uh, or we've had conductor you know, training programs with the DSO over the years and we'll say to them, if you're going to do a piece that requires a lot of intricate detail, Mozart, Haydn, Bach, Beethoven, um, you know, even Brahms, get yourself a set of parts. Have them marked. Mark mm -hmm. them yourself. Get all the details you want because there's so much there. You can work on making music and not doing all that nitty-gritty stuff. Leave that to us or mm -hmm. somebody else. Yeah, every year when we do uh, like Handel's Messiah, that thing is fraught with just tons of information that would be just painstaking for anyone to reinvent every time they had to do it somewhere else. So most conductors who do that piece um, have their own materials that they travel with. Do That's, they ever show up without, do they ever forget it didn't make it on the plane? <laughs> Does that, anybody ever walk in and go, uh-oh? We've had conductors who've shipped their scores in their suitcases, and the suitcases don't make it. Oh. You know, they get delayed or whatever the mm -hmm. case might be. Um, so we're able to help out with that, but... You know, the the lost set of parts thing has not really been something we've encountered, luckily, knock on wood, That's good to hear. over the years. We had delays sometimes mm -hmm. in getting, say, a pop show delivered, but it's not ever really been something that stopped rehearsal. And, you know, one thing a lot of people don't really understand is that, you know, I think you mentioned the conductor, they're reading off a big piece of paper that's got every bit of music that everyone's playing. Mm -hmm. And the individual musicians have individual parts. Like if you're playing flute too, not, you don't necessarily know what flute one is doing. Um, sometimes the parts are published like flute one and two, so you do see what's happening because of the way they're divided, but you have no idea what the oboe player is doing or the bassoonist or the string player. So a lot of times, you know, people will bring scores into rehearsals or they'll have one on an iPad, so they, if they're learning a piece, they can be familiar with what's happening and um, stuff like that. But you know, the conductor typically has a score that has everyone's information in it, and they can quickly isolate and solve and you mentioned an iPad there. Um, that is something new, is it not? It is new. And, you know, during this pandemic season, we've had quite a few musicians who've uh, resorted to using iPads and foot pedals. Um, and previous to this, I think the only time that's ever really happened has been um, a couple of Pops conductors would travel this way with their own iPad with their stuff on it and uh, maybe soloists. Um, especially for maybe an avant-garde or crazy new piece, it was much simpler for them to have it that, you know, mm -hmm. travel that way. Um, but we've had a number of musicians using them this year, and I think it's been fantastic. Really? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that will be where we end eventually, you know, end up eventually. I remember one of my library colleagues at a, another orchestra said at a convention, I think this was like in the year 2000. <laughs> the year 2000. <laughs> um, way back then. With, someone had their first electronic music stand they were showing, and I think it was like $10,000. And, wow. you know, I okay, so where are we going to find money to buy 80 of those? We're not. <laughs> <laughs> the iPad, maybe it can happen. Anyway, so this character says, you know, held up a piece of paper and said, paper is a great technology. Don't forget that. Mm. And it's true. You know, paper and pen, still a great technology. Pencil, you can change stuff. It's disposable. It's cost efficient. But pretty much everything we've done this year is disseminating parts has been via a digital means to the orchestra. We give them hard copies at rehearsal, you know, backstage that they can pick up in advance. 
but we've never gone to the extent we have now in scanning everything. And um, it was, you know, necessity that it happened this way. And it's been really useful for people. I don't know. I don't think we'll go back to the way we were doing it. You know, mm-hmm. some of the things of this pandemic, I think we're all finding that maybe we've had to work differently and maybe those different ways are sometimes better. And I think we'll continue to see that happen. Now, if someone shows up with their iPad and they have problems, <laughs> not, not my show. <laughs> I can't help you there. Um, so that was kind of the deal we made. Like, yeah, you do that, that's fine. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 